0: Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Neighborhoods. I'm Joe Heisler, your host, coming to you from the BNN Live studios in Eggleston Square tonight, also being simulcast on our sister radio station, WBCA FM 102.9 on the dial. I'm wishing you the happiest of holidays. uh, Tonight, very special program, a two-part show. First up tonight, uh, we'll talk with an expert, the former head of the... uh, Human Trafficking and Crimes Against Children Unit. she's now has her own consulting firm. We'll talk with her and we'll catch up on the so been a high profile sex trafficking case recently, last month, uh, in Watertown and Cambridge. We'll find out about that and what to keep an eye on uh, for uh, in terms of uh, sex and human trafficking. Then in the second half, we'll shift gears uh, to the Boston Public Schools. Joining me, the executive director of the the Democrats for Education Reform. Uh, She's been following the progress of the Boston Public Schools. Tonight we'll find out the latest on the mayor's plan to move the uh, John D. O'Brien mathematics and science exam school out to the West Roxbury High School, the old West Roxbury High School uh, site and of course uh, there was a, a City Council resolution just this week opposing that move. So we'll find out the latest on that. All that and more tonight on Talk of the Neighborhoods. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We're back with talking to the Neighborhoods. I'm Joe Heister, your host. Tonight, a two-part show as we ready for the holiday season. Uh, first up, a topic, uh, well, it's uh, sometimes a little tough to think about, talk about. Uh, we're talking about human trafficking, sexual trafficking, crimes against children. And uh, many of you may be following a story out of uh, Cambridge Watertown, a very high-end uh, prostitution ring was recently broken up, uh, interstate prostitution ring, and, uh, and three people arrested. It's just one of the many instances of maybe uh, because it was so high profile, it got more publicity, but uh, I find out what's behind the uh, whole thing. And, and the latest on the story, I have the perfect guest. She's the f- former head of the Boston Police Department uh, Human Trafficking and Crimes Against Children Unit, she now has her own consulting company. Donna Gavin joins us, and nice to have you here. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Nice to be
1: here, uh, Joe. Thank you for uh, having well, me. Well, is evening. is that
0: the case uh, that uh, the fact that this uh, got so much publicity, uh, uh, you know, kind of shined a light on this, but something that's going on? Uh, well, all over the place, and, and more frequently than people realize.
1: Absolutely. So I want to thank you for having, giving me the opportunity sure. uh, to be here tonight. Yeah, no and I think this case really illustrates um, what's going on, but what's important about it. Um, and I'd like to commend um, acting attorney, um, U.S. Attorney Levy, yeah. and the team of agents and officers and the chief right. in Cambridge who... It's a federal
0: law... Federal uh, uh, charges, correct?
1: Federal charges. um, They're actually not human trafficking charges. Um, We don't know if they'll lead to that, but um, it is interstate prostitution um, enticing the victims um, and taking them over state lines. But I think the leaders in the law enforcement should be commended for dedicating the resources Mm -hmm. to this case. Um, It really, for those of us who worked in the field for years, I think this is one of the first of these particular charges that I recall, but also um, sheds a light on how pervasive it is, how much money is being made by people being exploited. So, um,
0: yes. Well, and and again, for those that uh, weren't paid, this was just last month, uh, the story broke, and uh, uh, the interesting thing, I think, uh, for a lot of people was uh, how sophisticated this was. I mean, and (laughs) of course, some would say how stupid it was as well, because uh, uh the uh, john so called uh that were involved in this uh had to register and with the company the company that was uh, offering the services and uh including credit card information uh, all kinds of uh i mean uh, to me at least you know i, I kept thinking how, how stupid could you be if if you were so in, and you know who knows you know but supposedly included uh, what several high profile uh well uh, <laughs> everything if i heard heard uh, politicians uh uh you know uh, public servants uh you know all kinds of uh, uh people involved uh with this
1: yes so uh, to be clear i'm not involved in this investigation right. yep. um however In my experience, when I was involved and commanded the unit at the Boston Police, oftentimes we would find people from all backgrounds um, being involved in purchasing people for sex. Um, Most of the time we did our undercover stings in hotels Mm -hmm. across the city, and you would be surprised. Um, I think it's something that, it's with the internet, the internet has given, Um, both pimps and traffickers that prey upon vulnerable populations, um, a venue to recruit those people. But it's also given sex buyers um, a sense of remaining anonymous, Mm -hmm. so to speak, that they wouldn't um, otherwise want to go to perhaps um, a strip club Mm -hmm. or a street location where there is street prostitution because they would not want to be publicly soliciting. Mm -hmm. So um that's really where most of the online sex trade during my career um and still goes on. Yeah. We saw the internet really
0: explode it really changed things. Uh how uh, how pervasive is this and and tell us uh, talk a little bit more and again I know you're not familiar with you're you're not working uh, any longer in the uh, in the Boston Police Department on this but uh how pervasive uh, this is and you know it's Human trafficking uh, conjures up, you know, images of you know, uh, well, who knows, people in bondage and you know, uh, in dire circumstances. I, I think that's fair to say. But uh, uh, you know, I, it's always been kind of under, underground, under the cover, you no, know, uh, you know, that type of thing. And uh,
1: correct. I mean, so. Pervasive, if you look at the global issue, and I think today um, there's much more attention being paid. There's a national report, um, the Trafficking in Victims um, in Persons report, that estimates, it's so hard to quantify what the numbers are, Mm -hmm. but um, in one report it says that about 27 million people worldwide are trafficked, and that includes both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, Here in the U.S., I've seen estimates between... 14,000 and 17,000. Mm-hmm. However, I can tell you it's highly underreported um, crime, much like domestic violence and child abuse. Right. The c- crime largely goes on behind closed doors. Um, there are so many reasons why victims don't self-report. And certainly this case highlighted women from another country. Here in the U.S., um, we have our own communities, our own um, vulnerable populations where we definitely see an intergenerational aspect. We see children um, who had histories when I was in working in Suffolk County, I worked with the Suffolk County district attorney's office and some service providers. And um, sometimes we would get a report of a teenager who was suspected of being exploited, um, sexually exploited. And when we looked back, With our partners, we could see that this wasn't the first time that there were mandated reports of child abuse or sexual abuse. So there's definitely um, vulnerable populations, but this is really about a crime of opportunity and a crime that um, people make a lot of money. It's a very lucrative business. Um, You're talking worldwide. They're talking $150 billion. So it's really hard to gauge. And is it...
0: Largely organized crime, though, or is it?
1: Well, I mean, in some places it depends. Um, This case appears to be organized crime. A lot of the cases that we had, um, just to explain, it wasn't until 2000 that we actually had a federal law for human trafficking.
0: Very interesting.
1: Yes, and it wasn't until 2011 that Massachusetts passed the human trafficking statute, which covers both sex and labor trafficking, as I said, that went into effect in 2012. So even though we know prostitution right. and trafficking went on, we didn't have the laws in place to prosecute as such. So um, it's really, depending upon, um, you know, where you go, there's different right. kinds. And the whole sex industry, you know, when I talk about that, you talk about strip clubs, right. pornography, um, as well as prostitution, pimp-controlled prostitution,
0: and human trafficking. Yeah. And Help Help us to understand, help our our viewers to understand who are the usually the victims in these cases.
1: as I mentioned, you know the victims in these cases usually have backgrounds. Um, I've seen reports, research done that between seventy and ninety percent were victims of child abuse, mostly sexual abuse. Right. I had the opportunity to work with some great Um, nonprofit service providers specifically, and I'll I'll mention some of those at the end of our conversation, Um, but usually, um, you know, intergenerational violence, Um, kids that have witnessed domestic violence in the home, that they have also been victims, as I mentioned, of sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, poverty, um, lack of opportunity. They often end up going into the foster care system. Um, A lot of them End up in group homes, almost in an institutional setting, and become frequent runa- runaways. And then we see them aging out of Department of Children and Families with little, um, you know, little to set them up for life. And right. um, that's basically the last population uh, that yep. we
0: see. It's going to be difficult uh, working those kinds of crimes and and uh, seeing uh, some of that. I mean, must have seen. You know, over your years with BPD, some you know, pretty uh, terrible cases, for lack of a better term. And how uh, how do detectives, members of uh, police departments, that type of thing, uh, kind of deal with this? Uh, you know, kind of, uh, it's a very difficult uh, topic. And you know,
1: well, I was fortunate to have worked with so many caring, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Police. And you were with
0: uh, BPD. How many I was years? with
1: Boston Police. Um, 37 years as a sworn officer, wow. and I had a couple of years wow. before that. Um, but I will say, you know, I think to get into this job, you have to really want to serve and protect. Um, cool. But I also met some of the most resilient young people. And, and I often say young women because most of the cases that came forward to us involved girls and mm-hmm. young women. But we know it happens across the board to boys, to trans youth, to, you know, all sorts of people. Yeah. However, um, you know, there's nothing, there's not a better feeling than to know that regardless of the prosecution, you certainly want to hold mm-hmm. people accountable for the exploiting, um, but you really want to see somebody in a better place that's, that's safe. I mean, some of these young people that get involved, they're looking for acceptance. They're looking for a place to stay. Some of them have been um, couch surfing. Right and all those things, Almost, so yeah. that's really, um, when you see someone doing better, it, it gives you motivation
0: to do more. Well, you know, and you said you know, at least some of the, uh, the penalties, the uh, laws weren't in place for, for many years, and, and in this case, uh, you know, and in past years, lots of times, uh, people were arrested for prostitution, but nothing happened to the customers the johns so to speak has that changed and for instance i'm wondering uh, and you may or may not know this what happened to the sex buyers in this case from watertown and and uh cambridge i mean they had their names
1: well i would say um and like i we'll... mentioned this is a complicated case yeah. um, lots of people involved in multiple states um lots of resources Um, They've had to dedicate financial analysts for this case, Mm -hmm. a lot of agents in local police offices, but under the federal law, prostitution in and of itself, whether it's somebody purchasing sex or somebody who is being purchased, Mm -hmm. it's not a federal crime. That being said, in my experience, and I believe what's going on in this case, is that they are using the buyers Um, to get information. They may have, you know, as we used to say, flipped them to be informed Or to testify um, against the... uh, To infiltrate. uh, I mean, this was a sophisticated organization. And there's also barriers, you know, maybe translation and things as such. So um, I don't think, I think, we're going to see where this case goes. And I I can commend them for taking on this case. I do think um, if following the rules of discovery in court, uh, witness lists will be prepared, and I think you're going to see the names there. Uh,
0: um, and is there, you know, and you said the the charge uh, in the federal court is not prostitution, or it's not uh, human trafficking. You said, excuse me. Yes, me as I of remember. now. Yeah, I mean, but tell me, uh, explain the differences. You know, human trafficking, sex trafficking, right, and sex trade workers. Uh,
1: Well, under the federal law, um, you have to show force, fraud, and coercion. And so those elements federally have been, particularly with these types of cases, if a victim is a child under 18, it's strict liability, meaning they're absolutely a victim. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's been troubled to show that someone who may seem like a consenting adult, mm-hmm. um, particularly you know if it's a woman involved in prostitution, right. doesn't look like a victim. I think in this case, what I was happy to see, and I saw the press conference with the chief of police from Cambridge, as well as the person in charge of Homeland Security, and the U.S. attorney, was that they're looking at these cases as these people as victims that were being exploited by a criminal enterprise, not just Right. as we used to say, yeah. prostitutes. I say prostituted people, as a person once told me that she didn't choose prostitution, prostitution chose her.
0: Oh, that's uh, very sad. Uh, and we've got a few minutes left. How are we doing on this? Are, are we making progress? Uh, I mean, these cases just, you
1: know... I think we very, are... Very
0: difficult. To, just
1: you know. to definitely. And the awareness like this, having you know the opportunity to speak about it, Um, giving people some information perhaps um, later. But um, just so you know, um, the state of Maine, our neighbor, became the first state in the country to enact what's called the equality model. Uh Um, Right now we have a bill up at our own legislature that um, if folks want information, I can certainly get that to you. But the equality model follows, um, first passed in Norway in 1999, now all sorts of um, countries... Are looking to do the same thing where they charge the traffickers and pimps, they do hold the sex buyers accountable, mm-hmm. but they look to give resources to the people that are exploited and prostituted to give them um, safety and a way out to become um, whole citizens that have viable alternatives. Right. So um, there's a coalition, um, it's called Captain, CAP International, which, you know, 10 years ago didn't exist. Now you have mm-hmm. 33. Um, organizations in 27 countries, and even in Boston, um, our own—it's um, called the Scene Coalition, which was just developed in 2006, which helps exploited youth. And we have three other organizations that help young people um, get out of the trade. Yeah. So, and, and
0: if people uh, think they see a situation where somebody is being exploited, well, I mean, what should they do? Just uh, you know, well, I, because, again, it's not so clear sometimes.
1: It isn't clear, and I is, mean, you know, a lot of times... Even, say, oh, well, you know, oh,
0: that's boyfriend-girlfriend or, you know, whatever. You know, well, I mean, even it, for
1: law enforcement, you have to be delicate how you address these situations uh, because you don't know if you're going to put someone in a, in a worse situation. Right. But also, initially, because of the stigma involved, a lot of people deny being involved in prostitution. Mm. But you should certainly, in Boston here call the Boston police. They yeah. have a dedicated human trafficking unit. Yeah. If you don't want to, you know, give your name, you can anonymously call Crime Stoppers in Boston. There's also a national hotline out of D.C. Yeah. that sends tips out throughout the country. Um, so there's lots of, lots yeah. of ways that if you, you know, you're fearful yourself or you might know something's going on. We used to get tips from all different places. And certainly, you um, If you're a mandated reporter, meaning a licensed, and most people know this now, um, there's a safe harbor part of the law that was passed in 2011 that um, you have to report if you think, if you're an emergency room nurse and a child comes in, they're mandated to report. That ultimately ends up with the district attorney's office and the police. So um, there's definitely ways to report it.
0: Well, it's great to see that there's uh, progress. Now you worked for the department. We've got just a, a couple minutes left. i went uh, for you. Said thirty-seven years. Uh, as a it must have officer. started as a child. I um, so did. Clearly, I but did. Uh, um, now you left, and you've now started your own consulting firm. You're an expert witness. Uh, you yes. Yeah, so do seminars, programs, that kind of thing. Yes,
1: I, I took some time left. I'm still involved. Um, I mentioned this bill up at the legislature. There is a coalition. Um, It's called the Emma Coalition of Massachusetts that people are hoping that this bill gets passed. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I'm um, on an advisory board Mm -hmm. for um, the only safe house in Boston, which is run by the Eva Center. But now, yes, I'm looking to do more trainings, more public awareness about this, but also the other units that specifically I worked in, domestic violence, sexual Mm -hmm. assault, um, crimes against children and human trafficking. They're also interrelated because so many times the victims, and even, to be honest with you, some of the, the pimps that we charged in federal court, they grew up in an environment with an intergenerational violence. Mm-hmm. And I think linking linking those crimes and shedding light on it, I think, could really help to stop future crimes, yeah. whether boys get into, you know, gangs and sell right. drugs and girls get recruited into prostitution. Right. so. I'd like to do something yeah, very meaningful. pernicious,
0: and uh, so uh, you know, I hope that your your uh, your business enterprise here is is going well. And uh, you know, I think I think you know, this is just me that we need to shed more light on this. Yes. I mean, as I said, that case uh, was rather sensational, so it got a lot of coverage. But you know, there's a lot of stuff. Anybody that's been out, walked the streets, and you see you see people, and you go. Mm, I don't know. You know. That's why. when
1: you can always just call nine one one. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, and you a know. lot
1: of times it does appear. I mean, a lot yeah. of these young women think that it, they call them their boyfriends, yeah. and they're actually prostituting. Yeah,
0: right. Them. I mean, it's really a, a sad case, and and so I give you a lot of credit for well, all the work thank that you. you've done the field and, and going forward, and tell me again the name, the bill that's uh, for the legislature. What's it called again?
1: It's an act to strengthen sex trade survivors, and it's in the House and um, the uh, in the Senate. Um, and the numbers right now escape me. Yeah, but don't worry the, about that. Uh, but the leader Senator um, um, Lydia Edwards and oh, yeah, Cindy Freeman from, from yeah. both of them, are the lead sponsors. Uh, She's East here in Boston. Boston, and Boston and Newton, yes, yeah, yeah. and on the representative. Um, Side it's Representative Keefe and um, Farley um, Bovier and they have got some traction. They have more signing on that I wouldn't want to list and miss anybody. Yeah. But but I hope <coughs> folks want to contact them. Yeah, that they that should. That would be great. They should. And if they want to learn more, they can go online to the Emma Coalition and learn mm, more.
0: Great, very good. Thank you. Again, Donna Gavin, uh, uh, former uh, head of uh, the uh, human trafficking and. Times Against Children Unit, I have that right? I think I did. And, yes. uh, um, so nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in and, and talking with us. Thank you. All right, thank you. When we come back with more of Talk the Neighborhoods, so we'll shift gears to the Boston Public Schools and uh, joining us, the Executive Director of Democrats for Education Reform, uh, talking a little bit about uh, uh, an item in the news this week, uh, Mayor Wu's proposal to move the... Uh, John D. O'Brien's exam school lets math and science uh, out to the former West Roxbury High, and we'll find out the latest on that when we come back. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
2: Boston City Councilors gathered at City Hall to discuss the need for guaranteed basic income and a new program that would provide cash payments to Boston citizens living below the poverty line.
3: Guaranteed basic income as a project, uh, government-funded or privately funded all across the country, has really shown really promising results, particularly for families with children who are living below the poverty line. We have seen changes in educational outcomes, in health outcomes, and even in educational attainment for parents who have been the recipients of these guaranteed basic income funds. And so when you're talking about people and families who are living below the poverty line, they're making decisions between paying for food and paying for rent. And paying for child care and so on and so forth. And those are really decisions that impact people's everyday lives and their ability to really reach their full potential. The proposed guaranteed income program is still in dispute, with
2: some on the council arguing that the city is not yet economically equipped for it.
0: It's important that we ensure that everybody is benefiting and being supported. However, Providing a guaranteed income will be challenging during these economic difficult times. And it's about working together, providing as much assistance as we can to families in need. But I just don't think the city is able to afford providing each resident with a guaranteed income at this time.
2: While the proposed solution is not supported by all, one thing everyone can agree on is the damaging long-term impact poverty has on Boston families and residents.
0: For me, this particular conversation on guaranteed income, but really generally speaking about how the city approaches poverty, is not just a today issue. This is a for the future of the city 10 years, 20 years, by 2050 we need to address this issue urgently because what we don't want to see happen is we go from a population of roughly 670,000 to 800,000 and all we do is further increase the number of people living in poverty. I want us
3: to really think about what the cost of not doing this is. We can say it's going to cost too much money to bring people out of poverty. Well, what is it going to cost us? How are the people in our city The almost 30% of children who are living below the poverty line the almost 20% of people in the city who are living below the poverty line how are they gonna have their best chance to thrive in the city if we are not investing in them and if that many people in our city who are majority women majority black and brown people if they do not have equitable access to economic mobility
2: The stability of guaranteed basic income would change the lives of every Bostonian struggling in this economy. But the ability for the city to move forward with a program like this will have great costs. Last Saturday, the dancers from the wonderful Urban Nutcracker Ballet graced the stage of the annual Roslindale Christmas tree lighting in Roslindale Square.
3: In view of what's going on in the world right now or anytime really, it's very important for us to spend time together. Um, we're very grateful to have, you know, the chance to spend time, you know, with a beautiful Christmas tree with beautiful people, with the kids running around, spending time together, you know, at the end of the year. So it's a great time for us for all of us.
2: City leaders joined Rossendale residents for the annual tree lighting as community members of all ages came out to spread Christmas cheer for all to hear.
0: I am so happy to see you all here, it, right right here at home,
3: and
4: to start the season off right. In this season of giving thanks, I'm just incredibly grateful to be in a city, a community, a neighborhood of folks who take care of each other. And even as we're seeing so much out there in the world, Boston is always working to try to make new examples of how we can come together and, and do big things. So um, this is a, a true honor and always very special for me to be here with the family.
2: You know, it's so important for the community to come together for tree lighting. like the one we're here today in Rosnell Square so that we can celebrate community, we can celebrate the holidays together, and we can meet each other and understand that we cannot do anything alone. We have to come together in this time. The event brought neighbors together to enjoy musical performances, visit Santa Claus, and watch as the tree illuminated the start of the holiday season. My
1: general hope for 2024 is that we can come together as Americans and appreciate what we have which we we have a wonderful country here and I hate to see so many people unhappy these days but today I see a lot of people enjoying each other and it feels wonderful to me
4: this is just one of the many events that happens in Rosendale where We come together with our community, I see all my friends, I see all my neighbors. I don't even need to make plans to meet with anybody because I know I'm gonna come with my one friend who I come every year and we're gonna see everyone else we know. And it really just helps kick off the, the holiday and remind us of how many people in our community are here together. You can be in your house all by yourself but you come out here and then you're reminded of everyone that's together in the community that's here for one another.
0: Well, wow, following a story like that, I, I don't know how we, we can top that, but we might, because <laughs> in this half hour, uh, talking about uh, the Boston Public Schools, and uh, I'm pleased to have joining me uh, the uh, uh, Executive Director of uh, Democrats for Education Reform. She's a former Boston School Committee member, and for those of you following the news, uh, you may have seen this week that uh, Mayor Wu's proposal to uh, move the... John D O'Brien exam school one of the three exam schools in the city uh, from its current location at the Madison Park in Roxbury uh, all the way out to West Roxbury the former West Roxbury High School site uh, uh, didn't receive a lot of uh, uh, approval from the Boston City Council which passed a resolution resolution opposing it and uh, so we're catching up on that and the latest at BPS. Nobody better than, um, I guess, uh, Mary Tamer. Uh, nice, thanks so much for coming in and joining. So good to see nice, you. Nice to see you. Well, what what is going on here? Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, of course, some people would say that uh, when Mayor Wu first uh, proposed this, that mm-hmm. she was really kind of hanging out their ways on this, uh, and now she's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. getting a little uh, political payback.
4: Yeah, you know, I think change is always hard. Yeah. Even during my four years on the school committee in Boston, Joe, when, when there are announcements about changes, and even if those changes are good changes, they impact people in different ways. Yeah. And I, if there's one thing, you know, I think that this there's good parts of this proposal, and then there are things that I wish had been done mm-hmm. differently. And and, yeah. and I think what we see is, at times, repeating the same mistakes of the past. And And those mistakes include... Not bringing the community to the table, and in this case, the O'Brien School community, to have a really robust conversation about what this could look like. You know, I think if you had brought the community together early on in this process, had a great conversation with a schematic of you know this is what this is what we could offer yeah. if we move this if, if this is our proposal right. this is what we would be able to offer to your children to your to the students mm-hmm. in this new you know facility you know what can we do to make this feasible for you and i so i think this is what we continue to see though is that sometimes the cart gets before right. the horse um, there was so what's the
0: rollout, the way it happened. I
4: think the process can oftentimes be um, can be flawed. Yes, because we know that Boston is a city where people really want to have a seat at the table. People are very engaged in their neighborhoods mm-hmm. and in their school communities. And you know, the O'Briens is an incredible school. Mm-hmm. They do amazing work. Um, and so, you know, to have conversations with your with your faculty with your parents, mm-hmm. you know, family members, the students themselves. You know, I say that we want to show people the promised land. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we're lacking to this day, and it's been talked about, I think, by at least the last three administrations, mayoral administrations, is we do not have a comprehensive facilities plan. And so we're continuing to make piecemeal announcements. This school has to close. This school has to move. We want to expand seats here, there and there. but. I think if we had the chance to really right. drill that down. Kind of
0: unifying concept. I show yeah. people
4: like Washington, D.C. did this a number of yeah. years ago, Joe. And there's actually an online platform where families, faculty, anyone can go on yeah. and see exactly what buildings are being renovated next, what the timeline is. And so it's a very transparent process. And I do think that's what I'm hearing from our neighborhoods, from our families, mm-hmm. is that people just want to seat at the table and they want to know what the plan is. Right. Um, there are some really good parts of this plan well and,
0: and, and correct me if I'm wrong you know it would uh, you know increase the capacity of the school correct, and allow for more you know early entrance uh, seventh and eighth graders did I see that
1: uh, uh, potentially
0: uh, a facility that's you know a modernized obviously needs some work but there's also a a commitment there, I believe, of, of funding to, oh, yes. to make improvements there. I think
4: right now they're already funding, I think it's an 18 million dollar essentially a feasibility study to clearly identify what the building needs mm-hmm. in order to be brought up to where it needs to be for 21st century learning, which would right. be amazing because the facility itself, I think the building is almost 400,000 square feet. So you've got a yeah. really large it's building built huge. in the early yeah, yeah. 70s. There's an Olympic-sized swimming pool Beautiful theater inside West Roxbury High School. The other thing that's really unique about, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to say 44-acre campus. I don't know of any other school that we have that has not only a 44-acre campus, but when I think about a school that is focused on the sciences and math, the school is also located on wetlands. And so the thought of kids actually having the opportunity to get into boats, do mud samples, do water samples, like to have like this science lab Um, in the school's backyard. Um, So I see the the wonderful opportunities that this plan can bring, Mm -hmm. but I understand the concerns, not only of the city councilors who held this hearing this week, but also of the families Mm -hmm. who are concerned about travel time, et cetera. But to your earlier point too, if there's one thing we know, we need more high quality high school seats in the city of Boston. The O'Brien through this expansion would serve that greater right. goal, right. which is and a
0: really important. Right. right. Well, and uh, there's been an emphasis, uh, you know, on STEM, you know, science, mm-hmm. and mathematics, and and uh, so this would add some weight to that. But uh, uh, it didn't seem to matter to you know the parents, to the teachers, to uh, uh, well, uh, and uh, several community members that were flat out opposed to yeah. it, and and then of course the city council voted i believe it was nine to two or ten to two uh and in, in, in favor of a resolution opposing it mm-hmm. uh, so uh is that the kiss of death for uh for it's, this? A, it's uh, actually
4: not because yeah. i think that you know a resolution doesn't necessarily it's it's at the discretion of the school committee mm-hmm. to vote on renovations, expansions, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And and so it's really at the discretion of the mayor, the superintendent and the Boston school committee.
0: Which is appointed by the mayor. Correct, correct.
4: And so, you know, but I think there's gotta be, we really need to see more outreach Mm -hmm. right now, more, um, you know, greater levels of conversations with families and frankly, with our elected officials Mm -hmm. as well to show them what the positive mm-hmm. parts of this plan would be, and there and there are many. And again, when I think about, you know, the, no, the need of quality, high quality seats for mm-hmm. students yeah. and knowing- There's the,
0: a demand for it. I mean, incredible yeah. demand.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. we see families, you know, spending great deals of money sometimes to send their children to schools outside the district mm-hmm. because they don't get the right placement or the placement right. that they want. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to address is just some of the feedback that I've been hearing and that mm-hmm. came up at the city council meeting One was around transportation and we know that, you know, no matter where you live in the city, you're gonna have to travel. So I mean, I'm a kid who traveled an hour and a half each way, you know, to get to school, Uh, two buses and a trolley at the time. And so, you know, this is something, this is part of our history, like it or not. Um, Kids and families make choices, um, including METCO. Like we Mm -hmm. have students and I've talked to parents who are METCO parents. Even the kids who are in Newton, you know, that's an hour each way just to Newton. Imagine if your child is in Concord or Lexington or Carlisle or one of these other Medco yeah. neighborhoods that's even further away than right. Newton. Then you're talking sometimes two hours each right. way on a bus. Families will go to great lengths for their child to get an excellent mm-hmm. education. So I, we've seen that. And even when West Roxbury High School was still open. Um, and it's, is it vacant now? It has been vacant for a number, I think three years now oh, it's been wow. vacant. Um, it was down, it had two separate high school communities when right. the school was closed. But the students who were coming were coming from all over the city. All of our high schools, Joe, are citywide schools. Right. So we don't have neighborhood schools because that's been another concern is that, oh, all West Roxbury students are going to go to right. this school. And that's also not true because with the exam school, we have a new exam school mm-hmm. admissions process, and seats are now distributed by geographic location. So in fact there's a pretty equal distribution Mm -hmm. in terms of how those seats go. The
0: the concern I saw mentioned, and and given Boston's rather sordid history Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as when it comes to uh, school placement, segregation, et cetera, et cetera, was that while the student population, and this is true for almost all of the BPS schools, are uh, predominantly uh, students of color, Yes. Uh, Having to go to, as I saw it, uh, to a white neighborhood, and that somehow, I'm not sure uh, what was implied there. Was there a safety issue, or uh, whether uh, somehow it uh, would, in some way, interfere with their learning, their transportation, their ability to participate?
4: Yeah,
0: it wasn't quite clear to me, uh, and but. Should we be surprised that uh, uh, race is once again an issue?
4: You know, I I think this is, it it is, unfortunately, it, it is a part of our history, it's a part of our present, and we can't disregard the harms from the past that I think very often still come up in our present. And as a child who went to the Boston Public mm-hmm. Schools during the 70s. It was an extremely you, you, difficult. You, but where'd you go? I, I went to um, the Joseph Lee School in Dorchester, oh, yeah, and yeah. I, I had a wonderful experience with yeah. wonderful teachers and classmates that yeah. I'm still in touch with yeah. to this day. Well, uh, interesting. So, you know, but I know that everyone's experience was different. My older sister had a far more negative experience mm-hmm. than I had, um, as did so many other students across yeah. the city. I mean, I think that... I think your, there are
0: your bus was never hit with bricks or anything.
4: Mine was not. My sister's was. Yeah. My my husband as well. My husband went to the yep. Trotter. Yeah. Um yeah. and so yeah, no, my th- there it was a
0: horrible, yeah. oh, horrible people yeah. talk to people and they go, Oh my
4: god. And it and it changes you. I mean you don't forget things like that. Yeah. You're you're so impressionable as a child and, and the thought of seeing adults throwing things at your school bus yeah. is you know, I, I was very lucky, but I know lots mm-hmm. of lots of people who are not. Um but does that
0: That experience and uh, some of those actually that were, you know, at least testified or submitted testimony, uh, you know, date back to that era as well. Correct. Um,
4: And some of the stereotypes, Joe, and I think that's where even... You know i feel that you know even with west roxbury i think there's lots of you know whether it's west roxbury or south yeah. boston or charlestown right. you know all of these neighborhoods and for the better ha- have yeah, changed right. over and these so last is not your father correct and yeah. i love you know when i go to the supermarket <laughs> when i go to my favorite coffee shop in west roxbury recreo which is run by yeah. an amazing family from nicaragua yeah. you know west roxbury has changed all these neighborhoods have changed Um, And again, families have already demonstrated the capacity Mm -hmm. um, to send their children to Mm -hmm. schools that are not necessarily nearby Mm -hmm. because of the experience that their child will get in these schools. Um, Again, I think there's a lot of of work that needs to be done in terms of how we are working with families to either say, like, we really want you to try this. But again, I think-
0: So the conversation just starting? uh
4: It's starting late. I mean, I think that's a problem because, again, the cart was put before the horse. But I, you know, I I think it's wonderful, for example, that John D. O'Brien's son has been one of the most vocal proponents
0: of this. I saw that. I I found that very interesting. And I think
4: part of it, though, is because he knew early on and I think that the mayor and her team showed Mr. O'Brien what their grand plan was. And I just wish we had done that yeah. with a broader right. you know and, and group uh, we of should stakeholders.
0: mention uh, you know for those who aren't following the story it was, it's not just about moving uh, the uh, O'Brien out to West Roxbury. They're also talking about rehabilitating Madison Park Correct. to offer more mm-hmm. comprehensive uh, uh, vocational that's right uh, which I is another thing that's of course uh, uh, has been talked about forever. Let me ask about this in the context of, uh, of politics. Mm-hmm. As always, uh, um, previous mayors have uh, uh, you know, always uh, you know, talk about the schools, but you know, yeah. in, in many ways, uh, uh, some of it was lip service because it's a very contentious issue, yes. no matter. Uh, but. Not too many people really, or not too many were really willing to take this on mm-hmm. uh, to propo- at least propose the kind of changes that uh, Mayor Wu is. Has she got the uh, political muscle and the uh, uh, stamina to follow this through? In your opinion, I think
4: she does, Joe. Yeah. Honestly, and you know, as we all know, because we were here together yeah. on election yeah. night, um, Mayor Wu just helped to elect, you yeah. know, four of the new city councilors, right. and so. Didn't Um, seem
0: to help. Well, well, this is the old council, right? Yeah. And so,
4: I mean, we'll see again, you know, this really, in terms of the plan itself, it really is at the discretion, again, of the Boston School Committee. But I do believe that, um, you know, I I do hope that fences can be mended. Mm -hmm. and And if this is, in fact, going to go forward, that families are engaged in the process, brought on board. There's a lot of planning work that needs mm-hmm. to happen, and families should be a critical part. They need a seat at the table to to right. weigh in on right. even, like, what kind of labs, what kind of opportunities and experiences, right. like what kind of after-school opportunities right. might be possible for these students. And even when I think about expansion at Madison Park, I mean, Boston students and families deserve what Worcester has in Worcester Tech, which mm-hmm. is a national model for voc tech education. Right. We could have that in Boston, and our students deserve to have those rich opportunities. And so the thought of having a Madison Park reimagined mm-hmm. and renovated to be able to sustain and and have all of these programs, like Vet Tech, you know, that's mm-hmm. one of like the big programs now right. at Worcester yeah. Tech. Yeah. They have a wonderful partnership with, with Tufts Veterinary School, right. We have Tufts Veterinary School in our backyard. Right. We, should have, right we should have we should have a vet tech program, <laughs> right. as well as a multitude of other programs. Worcester right. Tech has a restaurant that operates within the mm-hmm. school, and the students run everything from the front of the house to the back of the house. They they do all of it: the management, mm-hmm. the cooking, the serving. To think, and it draws in business people into the school. That's exactly the kind of
0: VOC Tech school That's we you want to have here. What you here. want? It, uh, very interesting. Again. Uh, Mary Tamer is here. She's a former Boston School Committee member, and she's the executive director of Democrats for Education Reform. Will your organization, others, uh, weigh in on these kinds of issues? Uh, is that something uh, uh, you get? I know you've, you've focused a lot of attention on facilities uh, yes. and or empty facilities, money being spent on uh, you know um, facilities underused, underutilized. Uh, yeah. Um, is this uh is this a good uh expenditure of tax dollars it's also part of the mayor's green initiative uh, these are yes. all these facilities would be updated and and made green i guess yes and typically
4: there's state money that's available yes. as well yeah, joe yeah, through the yeah, mass school building yeah, authority yeah, yeah. so you know um this is work that needs to happen. And yeah. you and I have talked about this. Yeah. And so we do advocate, and I did testify, I think it was the night of the school committee vote mm-hmm. last year, yeah. about you know my concerns and the concerns of others about the amount of money we're currently spending on empty seats. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't do the hard work mm-hmm. of um, consolidating some of our schools, we will continue to spend mm-hmm. upwards of you know, $55, know 65000000 million a year on empty seats.
0: But this is... Uh, not to, you know, mm-hmm. derail your thought there, but this is a good investment in your opinion? Oh,
4: there's no better investment yeah. than the investment in our children's education. Yeah. I mean, absolutely.
0: But Again, I mean, in terms of uh, West Rock, you know, upgrading West Roxbury High School. Yes. Uh, you know, making dramatic changes at Madison Park. And that's just one of the pieces I, I gather. I,
4: I would say this because whether it's Madison Park, Joe, or whether it's another school community that we choose to move to West Roxbury, The reality is is that West Roxbury High School is a newer building having been built in the early 70s. It does need considerable work. Um, It was not maintained to the standard it should have been. Um, But that being said, because that building is built on wetlands, we can't tear it down. So our our only opportunity is either to let it sit there and watch it just crumble or we could renovate it and put. A wonderful, like hundreds, if mm-hmm. not thousands of kids right. in a school on a 44 acre campus. Right. Like that to me is a dream come true because we just don't have a lot of opportunities yeah. like that in Boston.
0: Well, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the state, uh, the commissioner, uh, of course, uh, shortly I think before or after Mayor Wu took office, uh, threatened to uh, state takeover. Correct. How is the BPS, how's Mary Skipper doing in terms of meeting the, uh, the demands that the state has placed on the... Yeah, so there's, uh, where's, a, where's that going?
4: there's an MOU in place, and I know it was at the end of last school year in June that Commissioner Jeff Riley had expressed, um, you know, some disappointment that BPS wasn't as far along mm-hmm. in terms of meeting some of the requirements as the, of the MOU as he mm-hmm. would have hoped. I know that I think it was the mayor who went and spoke before um, the Board of Education just a few months ago to say, this is the progress we've made. You know, I know that um, Commissioner Riley had outlined several things, including the fact that there was no person in charge of special education, which was a deep concern because one of the things the audit revealed was I think they referred to systemic disarray um, in the special education department. So these are some of our most vulnerable students whose needs were not being met. I know they've hired that person. I do think that um, Superintendent Skipper, you know, she's got her work cut out for her. There's yeah. a, there's so many fires burning at once. Um, but I do think we need to, you know, the the state um, needs to hold their feet to the fire and making sure that all of the provisions yeah. in the MOU are being met because all of those provisions lead to better opportunities and outcomes mm-hmm. for students in now, Boston. Now, we've
0: got just a minute or two left. Yep. i, I got to ask you about this. Of course, uh, much was made of the uh, ballot initiative uh, to create the millionaire's tax yes. uh, with the idea of taking that money and investing it in education or transportation. Yep. Uh, are Is Boston, is BPS seeing that? Is that... Uh, So this will be the
4: first. This will be the first year, Joe, and Ah. so the governor will. um, Her budget, I believe, is due um, to the state house leadership in mid-January, and so um, so we don't know yet. I mean, we we know that it's it's supposed to be, I believe, a 50-50 split. Between K 12 yeah. and um, transportation. Yeah, so that was before um, that. There might be some 25
0: money. billion uh, to up, to uh, fix the uh, T was announced.
4: Yeah. But, yeah, but some of that money, I believe, is for higher ed as yes. well. So I, so, so it remains to be seen how much of that money will end up in Boston versus some other, mm-hmm. you know, well-deserving districts around the state.
0: Well, and. Uh, As far as your organization, what's your goals uh, in the new year? What do you... uh, Oh, gosh. What's the... So much happening. Give us the... uh...
4: (laughs) We have some policy reports we're working on, but we're also deeply involved right now in um, working to maintain MCAS as a graduation requirement. You know, um, we're doing a lot of information work right now because I think that the majority of the electorate is unaware that if MCAS were to go away as a graduation requirement, individual schools and districts would be able to set their own graduation standards. Mm. And so the question that go, we want to pose to, to the electorate, yeah. having more than 300 different versions of a diploma in the state of Massachusetts. Oof. And um, I don't think that's a step in the right yeah. direction. I don't think that's right for our yeah. kids. Um, yeah.
0: Well, so that'll uh, be a big We one. shall see. And that's uh, also uh, before the legislature. We'll be back. Uh, I, I know I heard that there was a hearing on that. and Yes, we were there for that. Uh, well, uh, very, <laughs> a topic for another day. Yes. Uh, again, Mary Tamer is the Executive Director of Democrats for Education Reform, former Boston School Committee member here tonight talking about, well, well the latest plan by the mayor to make some changes, uh, maybe to including uh, the O'Brien School at West Roxbury High. More info to come uh, about that. Thank you so much, thank for you, Joe, and coming and joining us. Uh, you're watching Talk to the Neighbors here on the Boston neighborhood Network. We're here tonight, and every Thursday night we'll be back next week the same time. Uh, City Council President Ed Flynn will be joining us. Uh, uh, his uh, he's term limited. Uh, we'll be following his last. Uh, meeting that he chairs as the uh, president of the Boston School Committee. Until then, for the entire Stafford crew, have a pleasant evening. Happy holidays. Good night.